Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Chapter 90. A problem shared is a problem quartered. Gaius Aurelius Valerius Diocletianus was born, we think, on the 22nd of December 244, to an Illyrian family of low status in the Roman province of Dalmatia. In truth, his exact status isn't known. There is very little record of him at all until his rise to power. There are stories he was the son of a slave, although this is unlikely. Most probably, his father was a freedman. Diocles, as he was known then, rose, not particularly spectacularly, through the ranks of the military to become the imperial bodyguard commander to the Emperor Carus. It may well have been his leadership skills that brought him to that level, as there is no record that he was a particularly talented soldier. As we saw in the last chapter, both Carus and his younger son Numerian died in suspicious circumstances while on campaign in Persia. Diocletian has been suspected of one or maybe both of these deaths, but since he was the winner, he wrote the history, and history finds him innocent of these crimes. He was definitely not going to be innocent for much longer, though. On the execution of Aper, Diocletian was proclaimed emperor by the army. He accepted the honour, conveniently ignoring the fact that there already was a perfectly legitimate and completely alive emperor in existence. Yep, Carinus was in Rome, ruling over the west, and was expecting to be the emperor of the whole empire, now his father and brother were dead. Diocletian cunningly got round this by proclaiming that Carinus was a dreadful tyrant who only stayed in power using fear and violence. He, Diocletian, therefore had a duty to march on Rome and overthrow this terrible dictator who was going to ruin the empire. It's almost certainly not true that Carinus was such a villain, but remember who gets to write the history. Yep, the winner, and so it was believed for many, many years that Carinus was an evil monster. There are even stories that Carinus had nine wives and stole the wives of many of his men. Carinus heard what was going on in the east and prepared his own army to march. He was a good general who had successfully kept the barbarians out of the Western Empire for the last couple of years. He was certainly a better general than Diocletian. Diocletian, though, had many talents, but he also had the one thing going for him that all great men need. He was lucky. When the armies met, Carinus appeared to be winning the battle, just as things looked as bad as possible for Diocletian, some of the generals deserted Carinus and he was assassinated by one of his own men. Nobody knows why. The last emperor of the period known as the crisis of the 3rd century died, aged about 30, having been emperor for just over two years. We will take note here that one of the commanders who abandoned Carinus and went over to Diocletian's side was a man who will come to be known as Flavius Valerius Constantius. This man had white skin and acquired the nickname Constantius the Pale, or, in Latin, Constantius Chlorus. Diocletian was now the sole emperor of the Roman Empire. Diocletian intended to remain emperor of the Roman Empire. The prospects were not good, as about 90% of the emperors since Septimius Severus had been assassinated or killed in battle or had committed suicide, and Diocletian had no intention of letting any of those things happen to him. He was, after all, just another Illyrian soldier who came to power after the assassination of the previous emperor. Why should his reign be any different? Well, it was different because Diocletian transformed his empire into something completely different, and his skill in getting people to do what he wanted was unmatched since the days of the five good emperors. His methods, though, were quite different. Diocletian had probably been planning to be emperor for quite a long time, 
and he developed a few ideas about what was wrong with Rome. First, it was no good that emperors could be assassinated so easily. Second, the army's commanders were too powerful when they were not right there with the emperor. Third, the senate was a complete waste of space and shouldn't be taken seriously. Fourth, the city of Rome was not as important as it liked to think it was. And fifth, the empire was just too big to be successfully ruled by one man. Well, that's quite a few problems. So, how to solve them? The new emperor decided he wouldn't bother to go to Rome to seal his accession, and that he would completely ignore the Senate. This group of pompous rich old men could sit around in Rome debating as long as they liked, but he wasn't going to listen to them. The whole idea of the Principate was now dead. Diocletian wasn't going to simply be a first citizen. He was an emperor, and everyone may as well just get used to it. The Senate's importance was now history. Gone. Never to be seen again. There was still a Senate. There would always be a Senate. But their opinions didn't count anymore, and they would never count again. Bye-bye, Principate. Hello, Dominate, which is what the later empire is called by historians. An empire dominated by the emperor. Now for the problem of the empire being too big for one man. Easy solution here. Diocletian announced that one of his best friends would immediately be raised to the rank of Caesar. Enter Marcus Aurelius Valerius Maximianus. This was a brilliant choice. Diocletian was a leader, a politician, a diplomat, but he was no soldier. Maximian was no politician or diplomat, but he was a brilliant general, a good administrator and tremendously loyal. He was a few years younger than Diocletian and had been his friend for many years. A ceremony took place in Milan and the new Caesar was sent off to rule the Western Empire. Diocletian's next move solved the problem of the emperor being the prime target for assassination. He declared he was an agent of the gods. He wasn't some simple first citizen leading the people according to their will. No, Diocletian was chosen by the gods. He didn't dress in simple clothing like the early emperors, or in military clothing like the soldier emperors such as Gallienus and Aurelian. Diocletian dressed in magnificent purple robes interwoven with gold. He wore a magnificent gold diadem on his head. When people were allowed to see him, they had to bow at his feet before he let them have their say. He made the people, including patricians and senators, call him your lord and master. He decided to give himself the title Jovius after the god Jupiter. Jovius means Jupiter-like. And he gave Maximian the title Hercules, after the great hero Hercules. Diocletian, Jupiter, the leader, had the vision of how to run the empire. Maximian, Hercules, the hero, had the courage and ability to carry out Jupiter's commands. Perfect. A king or emperor declaring he ruled because he was appointed by God, or by the gods, is called ruling by divine right. This principle would survive in the monarchies of Europe for nearly 1500 years. In Britain, the divine right of kings would last until the 1600s, and would only die with the execution of Charles I during the English Civil War. Maximian set up his capital in Mainz, while Diocletian headed east and made the city of Nicomedia his capital. Diocletian always made sure, though, that everyone knew it was one single empire, not two. Unfortunately for the new team, Maximian didn't get off to a great start. His first task, subduing a rebellion by a people known as the Bagaudi, went perfectly well, but his next campaign was wholly different. The Franks had constructed a fleet and were making a real nuisance of themselves. They became very successful pirates, operating off the coast of Gaul and Britain. Maximian sent a general called Carousius to deal with the pirates, 
that Carousius, when he captured a pirate ship, kept all the treasure for himself. Maximian ordered his execution, but Carousius allied himself with the Franks and declared himself Augustus of Britain and Northern Gaul. He was careful to acknowledge that Diocletian and Maximian were legitimate emperors. It's probable that he hoped they would accept him as a third colleague. In this, he was to be very disappointed. Diocletian was a man to do things his way, and his way didn't include accepting a rebel commander as part of his team. Oh dear. Maximian was furious and tried to recapture the territory, but failed badly. Diocletian decided that if Carousius was going to call himself Augustus, then he must be fought by an Augustus. So, what did he do? Did he rush to Gaul to help? No. In August 286, he raised Maximian, the man who had botched the job in the first place, to Augustus. Unfortunately, a few years later, Maximian tried to recapture the territory once more and botched the job again. He was, though, very successful at keeping the barbarians under control in the rest of the Western Empire. While Maximian was smashing the Western barbarians and losing Britain, Diocletian was much more successfully making peace with the Sassanids. When he had completed the peace, he decided Maximian needed some help with the British problem and made his way to Gaul. The joint emperors spent a year pacifying the German tribes on the far side of the Rhine before planning the new campaign to Britain. Diocletian returned east in 289 and left Maximian to do the job. Maximian tried. Maximian failed. His new navy was completely destroyed. Diocletian, though, covered it up, though no record exists of exactly how bad the failure was, but it must have been pretty bad. Britain was still in the hands of a rebel and there were no imperial ships left. Diocletian spent the year 290 travelling back to the west to see the extent of the damage. Maximian was in trouble. He was worried that Diocletian was going to be highly annoyed and he was also worried that some of his generals would see how badly he had failed and try to take control. Good old Hercules wasn't feeling quite so heroic now. He decided he'd better make sure his best general was loyal so he allowed his daughter to marry a tall pale commander whose military skill was already becoming famous. Constantius Chlorus was also an Illyrian general, born around 250. He fought alongside Aurelian and Probus, and, as we know, supported Diocletian against Carinus. He was appointed Praetorian Prefect of the West, under Maximian. Constantius was already married, but he hastily divorced his first wife and married Maximian's daughter Theodora. His first wife, a lady called Helena, was the mother of Constantius's young son, a boy called Flavius Constantinus. We will meet this boy later in our story. Diocletian decided that the trick of splitting the government of the empire in two was such a good idea he may as well try it again. He'd probably been thinking about it for a while, but in 293 he made it happen. Two Caesars were appointed, one for the west to be the junior colleague of Maximian and one for the east to be his own junior colleague. It was obvious who he should choose for the west, but who should the Caesar of the east be? There is virtually no record of the birth and early career of Galerius. We think he was born in Thrace, sometime between 250 and 260. He was also appointed Praetorian Prefect, this time in the East. We're not quite sure what he did to bring himself to the attention of the Lord and Master Jovius, but he must have done something, because in 293 he and Constantius Chlorus were raised to the rank of Caesar. There were now four emperors, two Augusti and two Caesars. This government by four men became known to history as the Tetrarchy, the rule of four.
Constantius, as we know, was already married to Maximian's daughter, and now Diocletian married his own daughter, Valeria, to Galerius. Not only had Diocletian now established a new way of governing the empire, he had created successors. When he and Maximian died, there were ready-made emperors to step into their shoes. Constantius was given Gaul and, hopefully once recaptured, Britain, while Maximian kept the Alpine provinces, Italy, Spain and Africa. Galerius was given the Danube provinces and Diocletian kept the Far East. These territories weren't fixed though, as we'll see in the next chapter. Diocletian made everyone aware that the empire was still one empire, not two, not four. Each tetrarch joined in the victories of his colleagues and statues were made showing the four emperors as brothers in arms. The concept of total unity was demonstrated in every action. Any edict was issued in the names of all four emperors, no matter who had proposed it or who was to implement it. This show of unity was both entirely true and a bit of a sham. It was Diocletian who held the true power. He had appointed his colleagues and their loyalty was to him and to him only. And this was the basis for the success of the Tetrarchy. Four emperors working together, yes, but under the leadership of just one. This fact was one of the key things which caused the downfall of the system when Diocletian was no longer on the scene. Without him, internal squabbles were unavoidable and unity and harmony went out of the window. But that's for later. Let's return to the events of 293. In that year, Bahram II, king of Sassanid Persia, died and his son, Bahram III, was deposed. With their exit from the scene went the peace with Rome. The new king immediately began to raid Roman territory. Clearly this threat needed to be dealt with. In the next chapter, the Augusti will send their Caesars to work. Constantius will attempt to retake Britain, not an easy task as Carousius was a popular leader. Galerius will be sent to the east to deal with the Sassanids. Both of these campaigns will be difficult and exciting, and both Caesars will show how wise Diocletian had been in choosing them. Before we leave this chapter, though, we need to see just how much Diocletian changed the way the empire was ruled. The senior emperor was able to bring the army back under control by making several changes. He subdivided the roughly 50 existing provinces into about 100. The provinces were then arranged in 12 larger regions known as dioceses, each under a vicar and these dioceses were then grouped into four prefectures, each under a Praetorian prefect. He then introduced the policy of separating civil and military careers. He divided the army itself into so-called border troops, actually a not very useful citizen militia, and palace troops, the real field army. This army was often led by one of the emperors in person. This meant that no provincial governor had troops and so couldn't start a rebellion. Those areas which required a strong army presence were commanded by an officer known as a dux. Mobile troops were under the command of an officer known as a comes. By this time, most provincial governors were equestrians. Senators still governed some provinces which were not strategically important from a military point of view, such as Italy, but all of the key territories were managed by men of equestrian rank. The bureaucrats had ranks, just like military officers, and they wore uniforms. Diocletian was making the emperors safer. No commander had enough troops to rebel and all were direct servants of the emperor, or emperors. Much of the administration of the empire now rested with bureaucrats. These men had no military background and no real interest in military matters. The role of Praetorian prefect, once a true military function, 
became one purely of administration. Because of the creation of the Tetrarchy, the imperial bureaucracy multiplied. While Constantius Chlorus and Galerius didn't have Praetorian prefects, they did have officials heading other departments, and many other what we would today call civil servants under them. The four prefectures were each given a capital, Trier, Milan, Nicomedia and Antioch. No, not Rome. Diocletian really didn't like the Eternal City at all. In order to keep the empire fed and the people happy, Diocletian made the sons of farmers, bakers, soldiers and other important workers follow their fathers into their profession, so there would always be farmers, bakers and soldiers, even if the sons didn't want to be farmers, bakers or soldiers. He made taxes fairer by getting people to pay an affordable percentage of their income, not a fixed amount, and he made the citizens of Italy pay tax. See, told you he didn't like Rome. In order to keep track of who had to pay tax, Diocletian's officials carried out a survey every five years called a census. He also tried to fix the prices of important goods, although this didn't really work. Taxation collection and distribution was radically overhauled. Communities were assessed in two ways. The amount of taxation depended on the amount of land owned and the headcount available to work it. Most of the tax was paid in goods, not cash. Taxation in the form of food was given directly to the army. Anything surplus was sold at the market rate, or later at Diocletian's fixed rate. The currency was stabilised. Gold, silver and copper coins, which actually contained an appreciable amount of the real metal, were minted. More mints were opened so the flow of cash could not easily be interrupted. By doing these things, Diocletian made the empire a more manageable place, and life easier for the people. He also made himself and the other emperors safer. He was the emperor, nobody was going to stop him being the emperor, nobody was going to overthrow him, nobody was going to challenge his rule. And just to make sure everyone really understood, Diocletian made it illegal for anyone but the emperors to wear the colour purple. Next time, we'll follow the campaigns of the junior emperors in the east and in the west. Until then, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.